0: Welcome to the Bossed Up Podcast, episode 364. I'm your host, Emily Aries, the founder and CEO of Bossed Up, and I'm so excited for y'all to hear today's conversation with Melanie Ho. She is a fascinating artist who approaches the work of gender equality in a really innovative way. She's the author of Beyond Leaning In, Gender Equity and What Organizations Are Up Against, a 2022 recipient in the Axiom Awards, recognizing the world's best business books. She wrote a business book all about gender equity and DEI work in a novel format, like fascinating approach, really smart and clever, and we're going to talk all about that today. Uh, She's also a consultant, a keynote speaker, a workshop facilitator, someone who draws comics as part of her work. And she collaborates with leadership teams on future visioning, change management, executive leadership development, and diversity, equity, and inclusion. She also previously served as a senior vice president and general manager of research at EAB Global, an education technology and services firm headquartered in Washington, D.C., where she oversaw 11 discrete business lines and led a team of over 100 consultants. So I sat down with Melanie today today to really talk about how the higher you climb as a woman in leadership, frankly, the more barriers, the more obstacles seem to appear in your path and what we can do, both as women who want to advance, but also as the world, as organizations, to make that climb a little less steep. We had a really fun discussion I think you're going to find really fruitful. So without further ado, welcome, Melanie, to the Bossed Up podcast. Thanks so much for having me. I'm so excited to have you here. You've written a very interesting book, uh, Beyond Leaning In, which is the first of its kind that I've come across, at least, that takes some really serious and interesting and compelling topics around gender equality at work and presents that kind of research and that kind of radical feminism, if you would go so far as to say that, in the form of a novel like a narrative story. Tell me what inspired that kind of an approach and what inspired your book?
1: So there is a, a, I call it small but mighty tradition of business books written as novels, usually more on topics related to team engagement strategy, leadership. I hadn't actually seen any on any kind of diversity, equity, and inclusion topic yet, though. I'm sure they exist. Sadly, there's no clear business novel or business fable category on Amazon, so it's hard to find them or in any bookstore. Yeah. But I had started to become aware of them, um, I don't know, maybe about 10 years ago. A friend had recommended Patrick these Five Dysfunctions of a Team for me. It yeah. was something that he'd read in business school. A lot of folks in business school read another book called The Goal, which is, It's actually about supply chain operations and a really dry topic that is through the story of (laughs) a novel. (laughs) Yeah, You right? I
0: mean, we're not all clamoring to go buy supply chain topic-oriented business school
1: books. No. Right, no, and oh my gosh, this book actually makes it interesting by using this metaphor of a dad and his kid's Boy Scout troop, and they're going through a hike in the wood, and it becomes a metaphor for, for manufacturing. Cute. And so I became really fascinated about this. I was working in corporate America, kind of climbing up the ladder, um, just trying to get my hands on different ways of thinking about leadership and management and to yeah. discover these books. I had actually before I entered corporate America gotten my PhD in English. Oh wow. And my dissertation was called Useful Fiction. And Mm, it was on early 20th century American literature and how so much was changing at the time. Professionals, you know, the the 1920s were kind of like the 2020s, right? Just rapid change. People were trying to make sense of it. And novels became kind of a type of self-help.
0: I'm thinking like Dale Carnegie and like a lot of those businessy books that were parables, right? They were like Americana
1: stories. Exactly. Dale Carnegie actually was a failed novelist. He had, I don't know if he finished a draft or came close to it, but he kind of wanted to write this naturalist novel about America and ended up instead, Uh, we can thank him for How to Win Friends and Influence People, 1936, and still, almost 100 years later, a bestseller, and it does, Mm -hmm. you can tell almost that training to write fiction, It, it tells like a story.
0: Yeah. Oh, my God. That's so interesting.
1: So I just loved these kinds of books. And then when I realized that I wanted to write something about women in leadership and the challenges that women face, the idea of writing it as a novel was particularly mm. compelling to me for actually some of the same reasons as those other books, but different reasons, too. Mm hmm. I thought it would be a more entertaining way to engage in the research and hopefully have people finish more quickly. I think you think of so many business books out there and people will say, oh, I read the Harvard Business Review article and that's enough. And they don't finish it and they lose so much. So that was part of it. But also, I had by that point been to so many diversity, equity and inclusion trainings at work that just fell flat. And they fell flat because as much as people care, we actually don't know how to deal with these emotionally complicated, charged issues. And so, you know, you look at a case study and it would describe some unfortunate act of bias that occurred at a fictional mm. company. And the people around the room would at first kind of absorb it and say, oh, does that hate happen here? That's too bad. But then mm. the, the emotions, the defensiveness, the fear, the guilt, whatever would kind mm-hmm. of come in and suddenly the discussion would become this defense of the well-intended and everybody yeah. starts defended why the person committing the unconscious bias didn't mean it, even though, yeah, that, that's why it's called unconscious bias. They didn't mean it. And so my goal right. with beyond leaning in as a novel is that it's told from the point of view of seven different characters. We go back and forth. They're men and women. They're all levels of the organizational chart, Mm -hmm. different generations. And so that really gives you a sense. They're all well-intended. Nobody means to be biased. No one means to perpetuate it, Mm. including the female leaders. And yet the systemic and cultural issues are so powerful (laughs) that they do. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: It's funny. I spoke with um, the author of White Fragility on the podcast Mm -hmm. a couple of years ago now and she really hammered that message home of how difficult it is to talk to a predominantly white audience about racism because you just run into that like I'm a good guy or I'm a good gal kind of Mm -hmm. identity block and so what you're doing here is you're allowing us in a narrative format to really identify with all of these different characters' experiences. And it, I, I think it's such a sneaky way from a psychology standpoint yeah. in a really powerful way like to, to force us to recognize that we can make sense of these different people's experiences even if we object to their behaviors in a way.
1: That's my hope is that you almost have so much fun reading the book that you don't realize that you're learning something and that what you're learning is both which characters do you most identify with and why, but also who are the characters that you don't identify with and you understand their perspective without them having to do the emotional labor of explaining it to Mm. you. Mm.
0: Yeah, right. And a book can do a lot of that labor For us. Uh, But it takes a lot of work to write a book. So, how do you feel about being a woman writing this kind of a book and especially being a woman of color? You know, like, did you have to live these experiences to be able to tell them in a powerful way? Or how did you come to the topic of gender equality yourself?
1: A lot of the experiences are are definitely lived. And Mm lived, but also I think compared with others. So one thing I find, I think this is true of so many women and people of color is we'll experience some kind of bias at work and then we'll question ourselves, right? Did that happen Mm -hmm. to me because I messed up? Wait, it felt like bias. Was it bias? And you actually don't know. And I just became fascinated by interviewing women for years, it's just I was the person that you were sitting next to me on a plane, or I met you at a conference in the hallway, and I would just yeah. start interviewing you, like, tell me about your experience, <laughs> what's it like at your organization, because I wanted to know if what I was experiencing at my workforce, even as I was climbing the ladder, I became a senior yeah. vice president, uh, you know, I had a corner office, it looked like I had a right. lot of power, and in so many ways I did, but it was almost like the more senior I got, the more barriers I faced and the more I saw, and so I wanted to be able to compare those with other women other industries, other types of organizations, large and small, and also just all of the research.
0: Yeah. Everything in the research feels almost a little sterile. You know what Mm -hmm. I mean? You're like, oh, but that's not me and my individual experience in this meritocracy that I perceive to be in, like it's very much about me and my performance and what I can do to be better. We don't see ourselves as a class of women who are being, you know, held back by these barriers. It's so pernicious. It's so implicit. It's so hard to wrap your hands around that I think connecting the research on these macro trends to your lived experience can be very, very difficult for all of us.
1: I'll tell you, I started a document in 2012. I published this book in 2021. Mm -hmm. In 2012, we had an engagement survey at our office where the woman scored a lot lower on it than the men did. Mm -hmm. And that led to the woman in our department getting interviewed by HR, basically to probably make sure nothing illegal was happening by their point (laughs) of view, right? They were covered. But that was when I started to wonder, well, what are all of the reasons for an engagement gap? And I, I still have it. It's just this one-page Word document with bullet points that I took into my meeting with HR mm-hmm. yeah. to explain my perspective. And, you know, nothing really came out of those conversations, but I a had that document. Yes, I had that document. and Actually, yeah. Yeah, I kept adding to it over the years.
0: I love that. Let's talk a little bit about the engagement gap because that's where you start your book. Mm-hmm. And I don't think this is well understood. So tell me about The Engagement Gap, how you see it, both as a sort of phenomenon and also what role it plays in, in starting off the
1: novel. The novel begins from, there are multiple points of view, but even though I don't think it starts here, I, I think of it really as the story of Deborah, And she's a CEO. She's a baby boomer. And she's one of these women who has just smashed the glass ceilings. She has mm-hmm. fought hard to support other women. Yeah. She is a great boss. But she is realizing that women in younger generations, kind of the uh, sort of older millennials, younger generation X, who are Mm. just coming up into executive positions, they're quitting at higher rates than men, and they're doing worse on the engagement surveys. And the book begins with one of them, her chief product officer, Natalie, quitting. No job lined up, no plan to start a business, just... Uh, no real reason, it's just this job isn't right for me and it's time to go. Mm. And the book becomes, even though we go back and forth between the perspective of different characters, uh, different generations in places on the organizational chart, I think of Deborah as a little bit of a through line because we're watching her journey as she evolves, eventually through the reverse mentorship of a younger woman at her firm named Cassandra who kind of helps her understand all the things that she missed, especially related to the engagement gap and why that happens. Often when women quit, mm-hmm. they'll say something like it wasn't worth it or they'll pinpoint one reason, right? Yeah. And usually that reason is not the reason. That reason is the thing that gave them the excuse to leave.
0: Like permission to rationalize it, yes. right? Like I see so often, and I've done this myself many times, we have a feeling that says, get the f- out of here. I want to leave. I don't want to be here. But that doesn't count in our decision-making paradigm. So we have to look for a reason to actually listen to our feelings mm-hmm. and, like, rational, like make a rational choice is how I hear people saying it all the time. So they go, okay, well, what's the reason that I can find that would give me permission to act on how I'm feeling,
1: right? And yes, and the reason because we have a society that wants to simplify things yeah, and wants, the like, yeah. the reason, right? And so I think a lot of leaders, both men and women, when they hear someone's quitting – A woman might say something like, uh, my partner got relocated or I just had kids or, oh, I wasn't planning to look, but someone contacted me. Now, Mm -hmm. not that all of those things weren't somewhere in the calculus, but the decision to depart happened way beyond or before any of those things in a different way. I, I talked to some women recently who were saying that, they told their boss the reason they left was because they couldn't balance everything because they had a second kid. But that actually, that wasn't the reason. It was a reason they thought that their boss would understand and listen Mm -hmm. to. The reason was that the workplace was toxic. There was no sense of work-life balance. And getting to that point of having a second kid made them realize it and think about it more. But those were concerns well before that. And those were concerns... For all of their employees, no matter their Regardless. gender, no matter yeah. their family situation, exactly. right? It's just those things aren't good for anyone.
0: Well, and again, I come back to this idea of individualism, which is like such an American thing, and we, we feel like we don't see the system mm-hmm. as something that we can chip away at, we can advocate against or for, we can like really make a change on. So we look at our individual situation and say, well, I need something different. And really, we all need something different because this is not working for anybody. But to your point earlier about being a storyteller and a collector of stories, like one of the most powerful things that I've seen move the needle time and again through everything we do at Bossed Up is coming together as a community of women makes Mm -hmm. all the difference. Because when women come into our programs, like our leadership accelerator Mm -hmm. level up, and we all hear each other struggling with the same things across industries, across organizations, and we all say, I'm here because I want to accelerate my career. I'm here because I believe in my ability to lead and to become a manager and to, like, refine those leadership Mm -hmm. skills. Then we no longer see those obstacles, the barriers you talk about, as just a unique individualistic, like, oops, I have this, like, one problem that's not going to work for me. It becomes a systemic clearly a systemic problem that i think gives people a little bit of context that's really important
1: right mm-hmm. it's em- it's empowering when you realize that it's not just you
0: yeah and we're not alone and then we can maybe do something about it yeah so that that engagement differential you know what i mean is part of what i hear you getting at is like this is a systemic thing you've seen right mm-hmm. is that women are Lacking engagement because the world's making it really hard for us to feel engaged at work sometimes,
1: and because we're not treated equitably. And I think that that's the power of mm-hmm. diversity, equity, and inclusion being the acronym that most organizations use. Some add justice, J, belonging, B, instead of just diversity. And that's the problem: is so many organizations still think about diversity, equity, inclusion as just diversity, right? They've stopped yeah. at do we have yeah. representation, and they look around and they count the number of women they have, they count the number of people of color they have, they don't think about, okay, well, are they getting promoted at the same rates? Are they getting paid the same amount? How are they treated day to day in meetings? Are their ideas listened to and heard? Are we valuing the skills that they're bringing to the workplace? Any, I could keep going on and on.
0: Um, The answer is no, (laughs) No, like the answer is no across the board. Yeah, and I, I see so many people in the DEI space, D D E I A B, D E I A B J, like however you want to call it. I see so many people there being like, let's go to the next level. Like bossed up, we're focused on the first-time manager, right? Mm-hmm. promotion, And how men are getting promoted at twice the rate as women. So yep. we're helping organizations solve for that with learning and development programs to help cultivate that next generation of women managers and women leaders. But like, I guess my question for you here is, When you go through this book and you're writing about the different systemic barriers that people face, that women and people of color face in particular, do you feel like your hope is that this book could be used by the powers that be, so to speak, to make systemic improvements or for women to see themselves as not alone in navigating them?
1: I hope it's both. I do love hearing from women readers who will say to me, you know, I thought it was just me and reading this, I realized it didn't. But I also love hearing from readers of all genders who say that it actually forced them to really think about the system because we yeah. see these interconnected characters and what is happening to them. And you'll see one event happen from one character's perspective and then a different perspective yeah. from a different character. And I think that's so important. I have a friend who teaches in a business school. She teaches on gender and business. And she told me the story of how when she's at a conference and she talks to often a male colleague who will ask her what she works on. And she says gender in business and they get excited because they think they're woke and they'll yep. say to her, Oh, I know all about gender in business because my wife slash daughter slash girlfriend slash sister partner, whoever female in their life told me that the problem is X. Mm-hmm. And they just then believe that's the magic ball. I mean, and that's a lot of them think it's that women don't lean in, which was some of the motivation behind the title of my book. They've yeah. assumed it's one thing, which is women not leaning in for whatever reason yeah. or some other thing that they're focused on. And they don't understand that there is a system and it is complex and that,
0: yeah.
1: th- that we shouldn't be afraid of that.
0: Right. Well, on that note, I mean, I feel like the the focus of your book, Beyond Leaning In, really speaks to millennial women in particular. Because mm-hmm. we've we've sort of built a reputation – for ourselves as being the burnout generation, right? Because going up against these systemic forces, being told to lean in, like having ambition and structural barriers to contend with is exhausting. Yep. And so like in the wake of just chronic microaggressions and constant battle, you know, we're not, we're not so young anymore. Millennial women, right? We're like, uh, we're like reaching a certain point in our careers. And so many of us are Tired. So, where does the unique experience of being a millennial wim- woman, like where does that inform your work? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. what would you say you hope millennial women to take away from your vantage point?
1: Mm-hmm. So, I am. I think in the last, I'm I'm in that in between place of zenial. The yeah. The, the, so I feel particularly trapped in mm-hmm. terms of in many ways I feel like a millennial and yet seeing the perspective of older generations, the more you move up the ladder. And the, actually I draw a lot of comics based on scenes in my book. I'll um, give you a a link to this particular comic to put in in the show notes. Yeah. I drew one comic called mother daughter movie night and it it pictures a mom and her daughter together watching the film, my big fat Greek wedding.
0: (laughs) Yes,
1: so there's a scene in the movie where the daughter Tula complains to her mom because she feels like the mom is always catering to the husband and letting the husband make all the decisions. And right. the mother says, I'm not gonna quote it exactly right, but she says, the woman is like, oh the man is the head of the house, but the woman is like the neck, and she can turn the head any way she wants it to go. And underneath that, in the comic, I drew a mother and daughter watching it together, and the mother says to the daughter, remember this at work too. get men to think things are their idea. Mm-hmm. And the daughter says, you know, I don't know, mom, there's got to be another way. And I use this comic a lot to yeah. facilitate conversations across generations because I kind of think of it as if you look at the older Gen X or the baby boomers, they really had to play by the rules of the boys club. They were fighting mm-hmm. explicit bias. Right. And, you know, sort of like pushing those boulders up the hill. And so a lot of that was good advice. They had to pass along to one another and pass down. You have to get- And it worked things. for them. And it worked for them. Right. And then I think you have Gen Z and the millennials who were earlier in their career who were saying, this makes no sense. Why would we right. even consider this? And then I right. think you've got kind of older millennials and younger generation X caught in the middle. Yeah. With this like, okay, well, this is- kind of how I made it yeah but I don't want to pass that advice down you know I, right. I definitely advanced up the ladder by getting men to think things are their idea but also by trying to mimic their behaviors in meetings right, right? interrupting talking louder all of that right. and so it's hard because on the one hand it works hmm On the other hand, it kind of works to a point, (laughs) Mm -hmm. right? Eventually we run into those barriers. And I drew another comic uh, about the basketball metaphor um, I use called points versus assists. I'm not a sports Mm. person at all, but I used to watch basketball with my dad when I was a kid. And I wasn't paying attention to much, but I remember he would always talk about how there were players who got points and there were the players who got assists. And Mm. you can't win the game as a team without the assists, right? Right. But people don't care about them. People only care about the points. And there's a few chapters in my book where we see the characters navigating this points versus assist dynamics in meeting culture.
0: Yeah. I mean, you have a chapter all about the value of stereotypically feminine traits, Mm -hmm. right? So you're sort of like... I hear, and we I do this all the time at work, we have many a conversation at Bossed Up's HQ that's like, is it right or wrong to advise women to like play by the man's rule book even if we disagree that that's how it should be? You know what I mean? Like that is a big ethical rabbit hole we find ourselves falling deeply into on a regular basis. But yeah, what is your sort of takeaway or conclusion on that front? If you're thinking about the points versus assists, like how do you, How do you, I don't know, like how do you reconcile the need to gain some points and put some points on the board if you want to rise with wanting to value assists more?
1: I mean, part of this is why we need male allies, and I loved your episode on male allyship I listened to recently. I think that that's so important and getting the men to understand that they've been socialized to points and they actually need to value assists.
0: Right. and
1: value assist in terms of their own contributions and how they behave in meetings and whether they're amplifying other voices, but also when they're managing their direct reports, that right. just teaching direct reports, how to interrupt and assert themselves needs to be balanced with teaching direct reports, how to listen and collaborate and all of wow, these stereotypically feminine traits, right? Love that, love that. So I think that's one thing and that we can actually change policies around that. We can change incentives. We can change how people are evaluated in performance reviews and for promotions and all of that. I think that, mm. that that's one step. I mean, as far as helping women understand the tightrope that we have to walk and the Goldilocks element yeah. we have to walk. I always struggle that when talking to women coming up in their careers. And I, I think the best thing is for them to just be as aware as possible. Yeah. And yeah. to be aware and understand where they fall on the spectrum of points versus assists. Mm. And Both knowing where they fall, that self awareness, that knowledge of the context, then they can make their own decisions. Right. And say, okay, this is where I want to grow more.
0: Right. And there isn't blanket advice.
1: No, there's not. Yeah.
0: It's not a one size fits all. So, like, I do find like everyone who's in the business of giving career advice for a living, right? Like, you stick your neck out and you say, here's what I would do. And at the end of the day, people are going to do what they need to do for themselves. Mm-hmm. And like, hopefully the work we're doing is like equipping people to be as thoughtful and informed and empowered to advocate for what they want. But like what they want is really up to them, mm-hmm. you know, and, and what you want might change over the course of your career. But
1: And what yeah. they ma- want may lead them to them realizing they're not in the right organization right now. Yeah. And then they can use those skills of being able to speak up their accomplish up about their accomplishments to find another job.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think that's always in the back of my mind. Is like, look, you advocate like a hell. You fight like hell for what you want, like climbing that corporate ladder, getting that corner office, SVP over here, right? Like do you, and if you're getting chronic feedback that they do not value you, mm-hmm. right? If you are getting the constant negative reinforcement that this place is never going to give you, what you want out of your career, like the only rational, to mm-hmm. use that word again, like the only logical, the only self-empathy that you can extend yourself in that moment is to get the out, you know? Like you yeah. got to start to look at your options. You have to start to think about leaving because sometimes that is your best next move. So I wanted to ask you about the concept of leaning in because obviously the title of your book is I think alongside a good a good number of think pieces, books, or articles that have been written in the wake of Sheryl Sandberg's um, 2013 Lean In, which is kind of, you know, far behind us now. Mm -hmm. What inspired you to sort of pick up where she left off and how do you relate to her body of work?
1: I remember in 2012 when her TED Talk came out and I found it so inspiring. And I was at the point of sort of just beginning to enter management I had friends who were all in the same position in our career, you know, early thirties where we're, we're, we've proven ourselves and we're going to move up and we would watch that Ted talk before asking for promotions and raises, it was so empowering. And so I think for me, when 2013, when Lenin came out, and I was actually at this point in my career, I had just been promoted into a really senior position. So I went from managing four people to 70 literally overnight. And so that was Dang. a year where I was just trying to make sense of it all. Right. But also suddenly saw so much because I was seeing what I was experiencing and also, I now held all these data points, right? I, mm-hmm. No longer was I wondering, oh, was this just happening to me or my you know, few friends who were trading notes, managing a lot of people, being in leadership meetings with peers and knowing more about the people they were managing. Suddenly, I saw how much women and men were talked about differently in conversations, oh. right? Oh. The you know Chad is great with data. Haley has an infectious smile and then you know that Haley's actually better with data. And just mm. every day just coming up into against things like this. Yeah. And so leaning came out and at first I thought, well this is great because this will get the conversation going about gender at work and all of these issues. And to me, I don't think this has anything to do with Cheryl Sandberg herself. It's sure. like the phrase lean in took on a life of its own and kind of got weaponized against women. hmm And I talk about it as corporate America just loves its sound bites.
0: Yes, and, and, it, and bumper stickers. Yeah, it's, it's
1: like they want a solution that can be put on one slide, and you can't put all the complexity <laughs> of gender yeah. bias on a slide, but lean in is two words. <laughs> yeah, right. you're like, done, solved, done. got it, yeah. gender
0: equality, lean in, Right, done. and so yeah. I think
1: that became this like soundbite culture, right, and so suddenly corporate America leaders of all genders had their solution, which is what I noticed, and I would compare notes with women at other places as well, any kind of issue that would come up related to gender inequity, it didn't matter what the issue <laughs> was, right, It yeah. the answer was, women need to lean in and they're not because either they lack confidence or because they are struggling to balance work and family. And that was it. There's just like no other analysis discussion, not even listening to any of the women. It was just like, okay, problem lean in. Let's give the women some assertiveness trainings. Like you can't Mm -hmm. stop. There's a lot of other things going on. Yeah,
0: totally. I mean, it is a little maddening, right? Like, I, I love um, – what's her name? Anne-Marie Slaughter's mm-hmm. Unfinished Business. Yeah. It's such a – should be required reading for everyone after Lean In. Yes. You be handed yep. Unfinished Business right afterwards because I do think, you know, as someone who makes a living teaching women assertiveness, like, I do think that takes mm-hmm. a big part of it, right? That is a big part of it. And – And, yes. That sure as hell better not be the end, right? Like – There's so many systemic forces that organizations need to get together on and like so much that men can do to help complete the work that needs to be done. And also
1: understanding why is it that women often do need a certain of training? Why do we often lack confidence? And so much of it is how we're socialized from a young age. So much of it also just gets worse at the workplace that – our confidence kind of gets whittled away. I remember when I started my corporate job and I had so much confidence as a public speaker. Mm -hmm. I had in college spoken to audiences of thousands. I had taught at UCLA and just had no fear at all. And then I got into my corporate job. And the first public speaking thing I needed to do, the advice I got from multiple bosses of multiple genders was you're really short. So you shouldn't stand behind the podium, otherwise people will notice how short you are. And it's like all that confidence, Mm -hmm. moments like that, they whittle away because it's like, okay, the audience is going to judge me as a short Asian American woman. They're probably going to think I'm meek. And of course those biases exist and it's good to know them, but to have that be the main guidance I got, I it really did impact how I thought of myself as a speaker, even though before that I was so confident about it. Right.
0: Absolutely. I do think like, I don't know, if I, I think it gets couched as wisdom, but whatever this yeah. experience is of getting older, like the more experiences you have under your belt, the more negative experiences you're going to have yeah. under your belt. Right? Like that's just, that's a rule. Like that ha- that's how it works. So I do think those even if they're few and far between, those negative experiences are overemphasized in our memory banks. Right. Like we don't remember all the positive ones that went really well. We remember the couple of terrible comments that we ever got in our whole lives, you know, so, and then we extrapolate, we overextrapolate on, on those. So I wonder, you know, you mentioned at the very top of our interview, the higher I rise, or the higher I continue to climb in my career, mm-hmm. all the way up to SVP, the more barriers I ran into. Do you think that's a, a necessity? Do you think that's like just part and parcel with what the leadership journey entails? Or do you think there's something we can do to sort of inoculate ourselves against that? Or how, how do you think mm, about mm-hmm. stealing yourself against that internal identity crumbling as you rise in the ranks of any organization?
1: Oh, that's such a great question because it's true. No matter your identity, leadership is hard and it gets more complex as people move up. And often there's not enough awareness of that, of just right. the different types of leadership skills that you need at each level. I love the book, The Leadership Pipeline, which I think articulates yeah. very well at every level, what do you need to do differently? So I think the first step is just understanding that and normalizing it because There's so little attention at many organizations. They do their required leadership trainings, but often leaders don't really care about the details of why it's harder, what are the new skills that you need to learn. And then I think for women, just it gets back to that knowledge is power, community is power, having other women to talk to, realizing that there are things that get get harder. The Goldilocks dilemma we have to deal with at every level. It gets even tougher as you move up that it gets even tougher as you move up because there are more likely cases where you're the only woman in the room. It gets tougher as you move up because suddenly you see more and you actually realize what other women are facing and you have to make those calculations of what kind of advice you're going to give them. So just even knowing that that's going to happen, I think helps because so many women look up and they think it gets easier. Yeah. And- I mean, there are are many things that are better. Yes, in some ways. In some ways it
0: does. You know, having power and privilege can certainly help. Mm -hmm. But having more responsibility makes people feel like I have to be less risk tolerant, right? we become more risk averse. And so that really backfires, I think, for women. And the women in our Leadership Accelerator, like, I think it's so powerful – for women on the rise to have a community of other women on the rise Mm -hmm. that they don't work with.
1: Yes, that is so important.
0: (laughs) Like an outside advisory board makes such a key difference in your determination around like what is intrinsic and what is external. Mm -hmm. Like what is me and what is my environment? And that's a hard call to make.
1: It is so hard because in your own environment, it's like that quote about the fish in the water, right? In your own environment, you're so used to it. You don't even notice the small things that actually someone yeah. working at another employer will say, no, 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 that's, that's not you. Not that's okay. Kind of weird. Not normal. Yeah. yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, oh my gosh. Melanie, I could be talking with you all day about this. And I've really enjoyed hearing so much of your experience personally, as well as your approach to you know the way you wrote this book is so fascinating um i literally could just keep going but i want to give you back some time in your day so for those listening who are like oh my gosh tell me more melanie i want to keep up with you i want to see what you're up to and check out your book where should folks follow up with you
1: So my website is www.melanieho.com. You can find all my social links there. I reply to every single message. So please contact me if anything I said here you violently disagree with and want to debate, uh, have follow-up questions, just want to say hi. You can find the link to my Instagram there or we'll also put it in the show notes. It's melanieho13. And that's where you'll find my comics that are about BEI at work based on my novel. I also do a lot of keynote talks and workshops, uh, facilitated workshops, where we use my comics as a way to lower folks' defenses. I actually have folks do a little bit of drawing. I make it as non-scary as possible. We use drawing as a way to just get more creative and think about how to solve these difficult challenges. So if y'all know of any conferences that are looking for a just fun and different approach Mm -hmm. to this or trainings, let me know.
0: This is so cool. You are such an artist in how you approach this work. That's very cool. Um, thank you so much for being here. And I will definitely drop all of those links in today's show notes. And I can't wait to see you on the gram. Yeah. I'll see you on, uh, on Instagram.
1: Awesome. Thanks for being here, Melanie. Thanks for having me.
0: And now it's time for this week's Boss Move of the Week. Hi, this is Leanne from Texas. And I wanted to share my Boss Move of the Week. I was recently let go from my former position after they decided to downsize in some areas. And um, I was looking for new employment and I was able to find something, but they wanted me to start and I had a trip planned. So I ended up being able to negotiate my start date. So I was able to still take my trip and I was able to start there this week. But um, the podcast has always helped out as well as the Facebook group, um, I tend to turn there when I get a little frustrated at work. So thanks so much for all the work you do. Oh my gosh. I am so proud of you. Thank you so much for calling that in and sharing your story. I always say you never know who you're inspiring when you dare to share your come-up story. So if you've got a boss move to share, dial it in now. Leave us a voicemail on the podcast hotline at 910-668-BOSS. 2677 or you can always sign up for a mini interview with yours truly via the link in today's show notes or just email us your voice note at infobostep.org. We love hearing from you. And now I want to hear what you thought of today's discussion with Melanie. Head over to the Bossed Up Courage community on Facebook, where we always keep the conversation going after each episode drops. I'd love to hear if you uh, have run up against obstacles as you've climbed any ladders that you've been navigating at work, what you feel like are your biggest barriers to rising and leadership and as a woman leader in your workplace, or what you thought of Melanie's unique and really creative approach to writing about DEI. I can't wait to hear what you have to say and also want to remind you that all of today's show notes and resources can be found at today's corresponding blog post, bossedup.org episode 364. That's bossedup.org episode 364. Until next time, let's keep Boston in pursuit of our purpose and together let's lift as we climb.